Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. The FBI is calling it the Tran and Vu Drug Trafficking Organization, and tonight it's been busted. The Tran DTO is moving a lot of drugs. They're selling to a lot of people who really didn't need to be using drugs. So roughly safe to say 5,000 a day more? No, towards the end it was almost 30. All of these folks connected to that killing of Margaret Pitka, they were all talking on phones that were being listened to by the government. They'd come up and they'd be shooting, nothing fatal, but a sting, you know, warning. This is Episode 5, Run, O.J., Run. I'm your host, David Payne. People were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. A warning to listeners. This episode contains explicit language. Good morning. On January 26th, 2016. These two young men, James Ta Felicia and Jerome Ta Felicia, shot and killed Janine Brooks and James Tran, and shot and seriously injured Fat Nguyen, Tracy Bauer, and Amy Jo Chenault. The evidence that you heard in this When police and prosecutors took the Ta Felicia case to trial in the summer of 2018, they had little interest in and by all appearances, no knowledge of, the connections to Margaret Pitka's murder, the federal Tranbu case, and the larger dynamics at play between the Asian and Samoan gangs running the jungle drug trade. And that was understandable on many levels. Most fundamentally, criminal trials are specifically designed to focus on the crime itself, and the rules actually prohibit this type of extraneous evidence. The thing was, A jury was being asked to lock up two teenagers for the rest of their lives without the benefit of the backstory. And the entire case came down to whether or not the brothers had truthfully or falsely confessed to the murders on the hidden body cam Lucky wore into their encampment three days after the crime. You know, it's interesting because after the fact... When people I knew that were not, you know, part of the jury would, you know, what were you doing? What was it? Oh, well, there's a video. Of course, they confess. It's like, it's not that easy. It's not cut and dried. Uh, there's a whole lot of pieces. To jury foreperson Debbie O'Neill is a preschool teacher and children's book author who, as a normal civilian, had only a general impression of the jungle before she sat on this jury. Were you ever aware of, you know, the jungle? So under I knew about the jungle, yeah. You did. What did you know about before? Well, just, you know, going, driving by, seeing it, you know, and I didn't realize there were so many, there were multiple jungles. Did you have any idea of what was going on down there? I did, except I really didn't realize the extent of the drug trade. That was a different piece. 
although it makes sense when you think about it, but you just don't think about that part of it, right? And especially about the different locations and the territorial piece, I think it's it's more firm in my brain now that there's always more to the story. <laughs> there's always more to a story. Although this case was her first time sitting on a criminal trial, O'Neill was definitely right about that point. And when we finally sat down two months after the trial to discuss her experience under the din of Runway 2 at SeaTac, O'Neill was still processing her experience. When did you first realize that you might have a hung jury? Really not till that day, because we were talking pretty seriously, and some people were more vocal than others. Some people were more quiet. And I figured the quiet ones, you know, okay, they already figured out what they're going to do, what their thing is. But we went through, we finally, that day, we had made a big chart on the wall and went piece by piece. And that's when it came out. Trials a lot of times break down when there is a hung jury into categories of like, Mm -hmm. okay, we think he did it, but there wasn't enough information. Or... There's reasonable doubt because the identification was wrong or we just don't trust the police. Where do you think this trial, what bucket does that fall into? Hmm. I think there's a little bit of everything. But I think that for the people that could not come to a decision, it was missing information, like gaps in the information. It wasn't like, oh, the police did everything wrong. There was none of that. People didn't feel that way, but there were some of those things that were like, "Eh, that didn't quite connect. Connect the dots. They didn't connect the dots. Right. right. So, you know, in hindsight, when you look at it, you're like, well, there's pieces missing. Do you think the fact that they were minors weighed into that? I think so. And all of us, everyone felt like this is a tragic situation all the way around. I mean, everyone is... It's tragic and felt horrible. The ones who, even the ones who said, no, they're guilty, felt horrible about it because it's like, what are we doing? However, the last day was for me was like, I have to make a decision. And I and others had not slept a lot. We'd been awake at night. You've worried about it, couldn't eat because you just wanted to be right and make the right decision. For me, it was. And while O'Neill would ultimately cast her vote for guilty, something about that decision ate at her gut. I'd wake up and think of things like, I wonder what this was really about. I don't know if I trust him. Or just the picture, you know, the under the freeway picture is just something. And uh, just just stuff like that. Because I knew we were going to... O'Neill said that while some jurors were content to focus on and accept at face value the confessions of the defendants on the videotape, there were other jurors whose life experiences argued for caution. We had a couple of people on the jury who were from the same culture. One was from the Philippines, one was from Hawaii. And that helped because they had some understanding of how you respect and treat your elders in that culture. And that that was helpful in the conversations that we had. What was the theory, that the kids were instructed to do something or they were? They looked up to their elders that they wanted to make a mark, you know, who they were, kind of. Trying to impress them. Mm-hmm. Was there a discussion? But before we go too far down the rabbit hole of what the jury did or did not find credible in the evidence, I suggest you make your own assessment of the state's case against the brothers. And because it's been a while since we last visited the courtroom, let's let Prosecutor Mary Barbosa walk us through it. We know that this was a robbery. But not only from the victims, we know from the defendant's own words in the encampment video 
that this was a robbery and that that was their intent and their motivation. By the summer of 2018, the prosecution's theory about why this violent act occurred had shifted, if ever so slightly. Gone were the references to avenging a drug debt owed to the mother. And now, the motive was a simple robbery of a drug dealer. Fat was not Pablo Escobar. And Fat and Tracy were not running some major company. But the word on the streets was that Fat's camp had big money, big drugs, guns, and electronics. So in the early evening hours of January 26th, the defendants and their accomplices dressed in dark clothing. One by one, they pushed their bicycles up the hill towards the jungle, and within seconds of encountering Fat, they shot nearly every single person they saw. The picture that Barbosa painted of the crime scene bore little resemblance to the one her boss had portrayed on the news when the brothers were arrested, at least with respect to the living conditions of the victims before the gunfire erupted. And you got to know a little bit about these people during this trial. You heard a little bit about the challenges in their life that led them to becoming homeless and that caused them to become addicted to drugs. Without exception, Everybody who got up there and told you that despite these challenges, they lived together in this camp like a family. They cooked together. They ate together. They took care of each other when somebody was sick. They cared about each other. And fat was an important part of this family and of this camp. They all told you that fat took care of people with the money that he made selling drugs. Fat, indeed, was the drug dealer in that camp. As we told you in opening statement... And as the main drug dealer in the caves, Fat was indeed the target of the robbery as well, according to the prosecution. The thing is, Fat had his reasons for not wanting that to be how this crime was characterized. As we told you in opening statement, everybody was going to tell you that Fat was the person who was dealing drugs up there, except Fat himself, and that's exactly what happened. But you know from everybody else that Fat was, in fact, dealing drugs. Now, you don't actually need to... And while the prosecution would want you to give Fat a pass for lying on the stand about his employment details, they would be stuck vouching for him as the only eyeball witness among their victims. Now, about a week after the shooting, he identified James as the person who pulled the trigger. And he said he was certain at that time that he made the identification Just because he lied about being a drug dealer doesn't mean that he lied about this identification. Now, there is absolutely nothing in it for Fat to identify James for any reason other than he recognized him as the person who shot him. He had no actual beef with these people. He didn't even know them. It's not like he's identifying some big rival drug dealer and so he's thinking, well, if I just identify this person that takes him out of the picture and then I'm all good. Nothing like that. He didn't know them before this night. It wasn't clear to me that that was true, that Fat didn't know the boys, and that Fat could have no conceivable reason for picking James's headshot from a six-person photo montage. In fact, the circumstances around Fat's identification had so many holes in it, it was hard to imagine there wasn't something else going on. Not only did he misidentify two other people when he picked James, 
He also gave, as defense counsel Norman pointed out, this most curious description of the shooter. We had Fat Nguyen tell you what he recognized, that the person who shot him was a 5'5"-ish, chunky little monkey with dark-complected skin, about the same height as Fat Nguyen. And he told you... The thing was, James was a big guy, six foot one and 220 pounds. But before we get into the defense side of things, let's finish rounding out the prosecution's case against the brothers. And at the top of the list are the guns. Now, I'm going to first talk about the 45 caliber semi-automatic handgun again. All three... In the category of less assailable evidence, the police would recover and Barbosa would introduce into evidence two handguns that could be tied forensically to the casings and slugs recovered on the scene. One of these guns, a 45, was actually purchased by Lucky and Reno from younger brother Joseph at the request of the Seattle police following the encampment video encounter. And the other gun was recovered in a tent where Joseph was arrested. Now, what ties the defendants to these guns? And certainly there was some suggestion in the cross-examination that this wasn't actually the defendant's camp and it wasn't actually their tent. There was no items in there that had their names on it or anything like that. And that really whoever committed this crime just left these guns in the encampment. In fact, the evidence shows from the video that these guns actually did belong to them. First thing I'm going to say about that. Even though Barbosa starts this part of her closing on the defensive, she's actually on solid footing here. She did indeed have good evidence connecting the 45 to one of the defendants, older brother James. For starters, he is seen on the encampment video brandishing the weapon and saying the gun is his mother's. Now, the 45 is purchased during the encampment video. In this clip at 3522, they're talking about it. This is when the first mention of potentially buying the gun occurs. And it's James is talking about the gun is my mom's. She's trying to sell it for some dough. And Reno is the one who has the idea and he's like, sell it to me. And Lucky agrees, yeah, sell it to me. No, we're my mom. Oh. She's trying to sell it for some dough. She's got to to sell it Sell it to me. Yeah, sell it to us. Sell it to me. I'll sell it to somebody that wants it. That... You got to talk to him my mom. You got to talk to my mom. He never once says, nobody says, none of them say. This isn't actually our gun. This gun belongs to Tony over there or somebody else over there. This gun is my mom's. Now, on this clip... But despite the strength of this admission and the actual possession of the murder weapon, there is one flaw to this piece of evidence. A flaw that Barbosa feels compelled to go out of her way to dismiss as part of her closing argument. There is absolutely no evidence that anybody gave these guns to the defendants between the shooting and the 30th and the 1st. In fact, the evidence shows... Because if you had information to believe it was possible the brothers may have been put up to this confession, well, there was plenty of time to also give them the guns to bolster it. With poor eyewitness testimony and at least a colorable suspicion about the chain of custody on the guns... Prosecutor Barbosa's case would ultimately rise or fall on the one piece of evidence that was not recovered from the defendants or from the crime scene. 
The evidence the police gathered when they wired up Lucky and Rena with body cams and sent them to elicit confessions from the brothers. So, I talked to you before about yeah. doing that wire thing too. Yeah. He's down with it too. Yeah, I'm sure we're ready. Okay, so, a couple of ground rules. You guys gotta act normal around everybody. Okay. The encampment video as it is known because it was recorded at the brothers' tent was not only the key to the arrest of the defendants, it was also the glue that prosecutors used to bind their case together. Barbosa expertly wove her case narrative with the defendants' own words, corroborating the physical evidence with many of the things they said on this tape. This first clip that I'm going to play is part of the video where Lucky asked them, why didn't you just beat him up and take all their shit? And James says, everybody here is talking about he got racks, he got guns, he got electronics. So we're going to go check it out. Why'd you guys beat him up? What? No, no I said, why didn't you guys beat him up and take all his shit? Talking about, he got rats, he got guns, he got electronics full of shit. So we were like, yo, we're gonna go check it out. And this is kind of like the whole trial went. We'd listen to pieces of this poorly recorded police video, and Barbosa or her witnesses would have to explain what was said. We went up there for a jig. The jig didn't come through. So I told, uh, what's his name? Here, I want you to go see who's up there. I'm going to go do something. He says we went up there for a jig. Remember you heard that's a drug deal. The jug didn't come through. So I told, what's his name? To go see who's up there, I'm going to go do something. So I sent Ski up there. But if Barbosa was going to convict these defendants, she would have to do more than just replay this chatter. She would need to use the defendants' own words to put the guns in their hands. And in this first section, this is where Lucky tells them that Fat lived, that he survived. And James says, no, you're thinking about the other guy. And he says, I shot Fat. Jerome shot him two times in the neck. The other guy, I popped him in the chest. Fat Lee, he survived, Bruce. You guys are thinking about the other guy. I shot Fat, Jerome shot him two times in the neck, and the other guy popped him in the chest. Reno then starts talking to Jerome. You had the four or five, and you can hear Jerome say, I had the deuce deuce. To which you can hear Reno respond, oh, you had the deuce deuce, right on. And then Jerome says, I fired the four or five, but it was too loud. And James says, I know, I couldn't keep doing it. You had the 45? Jerome, possibly. I had the Oh, yeah, the deuce deuce deuce. Right on. I fired the four five. Because it was too loud, so. I know, I couldn't keep doing it. And if you're playing jury member at home, you probably now have some empathy for just what the jury was wrestling with before they hung. Not only did they have to figure out what was actually said on the overmodulated video, but they also had to resolve the conflicts between the testimonial and physical evidence. On the one hand, it sounds really bad that the brothers are talking about having and using the exact type of guns that the police matched to the shooting. On the other hand, 
This confession directly contradicts the government's own evidence on which brother shot which gun, requiring Prosecutor Barbosa to have to reach. Yeah, Jerome does say, I fired the 4-5. But we don't know if he meant, did he fire that 4-5 that night? Did they hand off the gun? Recall there is that lone 45 casing that's off farther past the tent that's almost on the trail. It's entirely possible that it's at that point that he fired the 4-5. But we know James was firing the 45 that night because after Jerome says it was too loud, James says, I know. I couldn't keep doing it. So I want you to listen to that. Warts and all, though, if you walked into this case cold, the prosecutors did a good job presenting the evidence they had. They also had the benefit of the video showing the brothers acting juvenile and, quite frankly, thuggish. Jody and I had debriefed immediately after the closing arguments when our thoughts were fresh. I thought it was interesting the way the prosecutor laid it out. It was very straightforward, and she did a good job just understanding what the elements of it were. If you watch just the morning portion of this case, I think the jury would be ready to convict rather quickly. Definitely, with all that video evidence, and that was kind of incredible that they had him wired up and were able to use that in trial. That's pretty damning. I think probably some of the most damning part of that video was the attitude of the kids. The arrogance. The arrogance, the laughing. I think that will hurt them as Mm -hmm. much as anything. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. If it was fair to say that the prosecutors did a good job building a case brick by brick, it was equally true that the two defense counsel did a good job at poking holes through it. Defense attorney Dan Norman would bat first and come out swinging on the first pitch. Ladies and gentlemen, as you've heard on this video, James Toffolis is saying, I shot fat, not contested. The confession that was supposed to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that James committed these crimes. What could be more simple than that? Someone on trial. Norman would leap straight into the heart of the prosecution's case, the encampment video. And the thrust of his defense was that if what the defendants said didn't match the forensics, then it was just kids bragging to project toughness or stake out a name for themselves. Not only did James say that he shot fat, he said he had the 22 and he shot fat. The state is agreeing, it is not contested. Fat and Wayne was not shot with the 22. I'm gonna talk about this a little later, but it was clear that Fat and Wayne was shot with a 45. James Tran was shot with a 45. And the same person who shot fat shot James Tran. So like a lot of the other... Norman is right about this point. The prosecution's medical examiner did testify that both Fat Nguyen and James Tran were shot with a 45. So like a lot of the other claims that James made on this videotape, the evidence actually doesn't support that James Ta Felicia was telling you the truth. It tells you the exact opposite, that on January 30th of 2016, he was lying. The state touched on this a little bit. And if you can't believe the confession... 
What do you really have? And I ask when you listen to these closing arguments, you hold the state to their theory. Their theory that on January 30th, when these boys and their brother were talking, they were telling you the truth. And don't let the state now come before you and say, it doesn't matter who shot who. Maybe James had the 22. Maybe James had the 45. Maybe they switched guns. Because if the state is going to base their case on the allegation that what these boys said on January 30th of 2016 is true, well then if what they're saying isn't true, then the state's case doesn't hold water. It falls apart. Now you might think that Norman's point about who was carrying which gun is an insignificant one. If they were carrying either gun, or even just their participating, they could be convicted under the theory of accomplice liability. But there was a deeper undercurrent to his argument that the teenagers had been put up to and were play-acting in their confession, something co-counsel Yvonne Curtis would bring home in her emotional closing plea to the jury. Jerome had just turned 16 years old in October 2015. What did you do for your 16th, your child's 16th? Did you have a roof over your head? Did your children? Was there heat in the house in January? Those circumstances were not Jerome's. But that doesn't make him any less of a teenager. It doesn't make his state of being as a teenager any different than the circumstance that I just described as far as that desire for pure acceptance. It's just that in his community, that is defined very differently. It doesn't mean that they don't lie and embellish and attempt to impress their peer group. And it wasn't just lying to embellish to their peers that Curtis argued, but lying to curry favor with their elders, too. And as Mr. Norman discussed, there were three days between Lucky and Reno's meeting with Seattle Police Department detectives and the actual wearing of the wire and the recording. Juice knew there was going to be a secret recording. Plenty of time to talk to these boys to tell them to take credit for something that they did not do. They're not going to tell the story right because they didn't do it, but they want to impress their peer group. It's hard for us to comprehend, but it is a different peer group in which they wish to matter. Now the government argues there is- This notion that Lucky and Juice staged the meeting gives a whole new perspective on the video, which sounds so damning on first listen. Truth be told, there were deeper problems with the prosecutor's case that went beyond facts not matching what was said in the video. And top of that list was the frankly sparse and conflicting testimony of the two female victim eyewitnesses. There are two important pieces of evidence that are critical in this case. One is that Amy Jo Chenault knows the boys. She lived in the same encampment area with James, Jerome, and Joseph. Amy Jo did not recognize or identify the voices that she heard that night. The other critical piece of evidence is that Tracy Bauer knows who shot her. Juice. She hung out with him. 
She did drugs with him. She said it seconds after being shot. And every time she is asked, who shot you? Her answer is Juice, a man she knows. And on this point, Yvonne Curtis was spot on. Tracy Bauer knew her shooter, and the police flat out ignored that because it didn't fit their narrative by the time they were able to speak with her in the hospital. Co-counsel Dan Norman would tag team off Curtis to drive the point home. So the question is, what evidence is there about Juice? State says there isn't any. Is it possible that Tracy Bauer picked the wrong guy? What if the police had conducted a thorough and complete investigation? There was a scene where two people were killed, five people were shot, and somebody on scene, a victim who knew her assailant and identified him by name, and information was known to Detective Cooper, he could have done a lot of things with that information. Could have found a last address for Juice, family members for Juice, absolutely nothing was done. And he's not exaggerating. In fact, perhaps the most glaring omission in the police investigation was their failure to track down Juice. It would take Detective Cooper a year to even find him. And by that point, it was clear he wasn't really in a mood to gather even basic information about Juice's alibi or to stop the train he had started rolling a year before. Detective Cooper then a year later talks to Juice at the Pierce County Jail. He asked Juice, Generally, where were you around the time of these shootings? And you said in SeaTac with a friend of mine, Detective Cooper, not one follow-up question. Where in SeaTac? Street? Neighborhood? Location? What was it near? Not one follow-up question, literally. He basically met with Juice and said, you didn't do this right. The individual who was named on scene as the shooter And while it is easy and sometimes unfair to just criticize the police, in this case, it was indisputable that Cooper should have done a better job tracking down Juice, not only because he was identified by Tracy Bauer as the shooter, but also because when he finally got on the witness stand two years later, it was obvious to everyone in the courtroom that his alibi was suspect when he couldn't even tell police whose house he was supposedly living in at the time. You said he had lived at this house for a year, from January 2016. He meets with Detective Cooper and says the guy's name is Warren in January of 2017. He gets on the witness stand. Now again, two years later, a guy that he had known for 20 months and lived with for a year and said his name was Wallace. He can't get the guy's first name straight. Juice was not telling the truth. I just ask for you to think about that if that seems And like even that. if Cooper couldn't unring the bell on the original sin of ignoring Juice for a year, he clearly could have done some damage control by at least checking out the alibi once he got it. It is clear that if Detective Cooper had checked out Juice's alibi, it wouldn't have held water. Clearly, no one would have verified that story because it wasn't true. And if it's not true, what does Juice have to hide? Why does Juice need to tell you a story if he was not involved? in these shootings. Why does he need to lie about where he was? So while Juice's story didn't make any sense, neither did Detective Cooper's. A 30-year veteran who pivots the case on a dime the minute Juice's brother-in-law walked into his squad room three years ago. 
And on this point, co-counsel Curtis would take us home. For Detective Cooper on the evening of January 27th, the focus of the investigation changed from juice to the boys. Despite Lucky's drug delivery arrests, despite the fact that he's wanting money, despite the fact that Juice, the person who was the named suspect the night of the shooting is Lucky's brother-in-law and someone he grew up with, Detective Cooper changes his focus from his investigation from Juice to teenage boys. Detective Cooper took the word of some man he had never met over the woman who was shot. And if Cooper was going to take the word of a suspect's brother-in-law over that of a victim, we'd have to make our own credibility assessments of the witnesses in the jungle. Another damn, we just trying to make a way now. The hatred growing stronger every single day now. I hear these rappers, they ain't trying to talk about it. They ain't trying to get involved, and they would rather catch a wave now. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. Well, why aren't they sitting here? If they were there, then they're guilty also, right? One of Fats's runners went up to Uncle Francis, pulled out a gun. He said, this is our territory now. Tell us about your friend. Because he is like he's got a person. I met you guys here for a reason, for a purpose, you know. Everything happened for a reason. You know, I believe in that. Yeah, stop it. Y'all not popping. on the ground, fair Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole and Pat Kicklighter at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening. Oh.